How are you doing today? How many would like to have your faith challenged today? That was supposed to be a positive thing, not a negative thing. How many wants your faith to enlarge today? Let me ask that way. Okay. All right. Peyton, I'm going to ask for just a tad more of this vocal in my ear. I'm getting old and deaf and blind, so it happens. So, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I find that on a regular basis, I need to have my faith challenged. It's just the way it is. I face a new day, a new situation, a new circumstance, and I realize that I, my faith needs to enlarge because I have discovered a few things about me. I am perfectly capable of getting a, in a rut in my thinking. I know that's not you, but that's me. I'm perfectly capable of passing my own judgment on something only to discover later that God had a completely different thing in mind or a com- completely different goal in, in mind than I did, and my perspective was uh, a bit off. I'm also capable of uh, succumbing at times to the thinking that because something never has happened, that it never will happen, or that because I haven't seen it with my own eyes, that, that somehow God uh, either can't or won't do it. I, I can go there. I'm also capable of becoming comfortable with the status quo and thinking, what, well, it is what it is. And I can settle in my thinking that way at times, and then somehow God in His incredible uh, mercy and grace to me will allow me to be put in a situation to be inspired to go beyond myself and allow me to have my faith enlarged and expanded and to be reminded that we serve a big God. And He's bigger than I've ever even imagined Him to be. I can't even begin to imagine how big our God is. More often than not, uh, the challenge for me comes when I'll run across a scripture that somehow I'll get a glimpse of a man or a woman given to us in the Word of God that will challenge me to believe God for greater things in Him and to not be content with things the way they are. How many of you know today that the Word of God is still powerful? Do you agree with me on that today? And you know, sometimes all it takes is just one word, just one word, one word I've discovered from Scripture that can literally set my heart ablaze, or one word that can, that can remind me, literally leap off the page that will remind me of how great God is, or, or one word that can change my thinking completely on something. And that's exactly what happened to me with this passage of Scripture that I'm going to um, present to you this morning as I'm asking the Lord to challenge you as well with it. I, if He just does a portion for you or a, a percentage for you of what He's done for me, I'll, I'd be satisfied. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your devices to 1 Samuel chapter 13. See how tech savvy I am? I knew how to say that. We used to say turn in your Bible. How many of you actually bring a real Bible? Raise it up. Let me see. Let me, let me see that real Bible. Hallelujah. Good. How many of you are looking at Scripture on a device? Raise that up in the air. Uh, well, I think we're getting outnumbered, old folks. It's happening. Wow. Before I take you to, go ahead and get to 1 Samuel 13, but before I go there, I want to give you a quick story that sets up so well the message that I have for you today. It was 1982, and a guy named Larry Walters was a 33-year-old man who decided he wanted to see his neighborhood from a different perspective. So, he went down to his local army surplus store, and he bought 45 used weather balloons. 
And that afternoon, he strapped himself into a lawn chair to which several of his friends tied the now helium-filled balloons. This is true. He took along some sodas and some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. You know, we all have to have that. And a BB gun. The BB gun was so he could shoot the balloons when it was time for him to land. I didn't say the man was smart. I'm just telling you what he did, okay? BB gun to shoot the balloons when it was time for him to land. Well, Mr. Walters, who assumed the balloons would lift him about 100 feet into the air, was caught off guard when his chair soared more than 11,000 feet into the sky. That's not the worst. Right in the middle of the traffic of the LAX airport. Too frightened to shoot down any of the balloons. Uh, That was smart. He stayed airborne for more than two hours over the LAX airport at 11,000 feet in a lawn chair eating PB&J sandwiches. It wasn't too long until he was grounded by the police and the reporters asked him these three questions. Number one, were you scared? Yes. Would you do it again? No. Why did you do it? He said, because I got tired of just sitting there. You know, I get a visual on this with me. Can you imagine being a pilot for American Airlines and you're coming in for a landing at LAX? You look out the window. There's a guy munching on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in a lawn chair. I think I would question my sanity if I saw that, if I was them. But I loved his answer. His answer is because I got tired of just sitting there. I tried to allow myself in my mind to imagine the moment when he was just sitting there and what might have gone on in his head that would have caused him to do something this crazy. Well, he could have thought, well, there's got to be more than this. Got to be more to life than this. He could have thought that. Could have thought, wouldn't it be, um, wouldn't it be fun and exciting if, uh, or I wonder what would happen if I did something crazy like, and you know, I, I don't know what he was thinking. And I, I honestly couldn't help but think this. I wonder if we need some of that kind of thinking in the church today. Not just crazy for the sake of crazy. No. But people who are tired of the mundane, people who are tired of the status quo, people who are tired of just going through the the routine of their Christian life, people who are willing to think outside the box, and people who are willing to imagine, what if? And I guess I have to wonder, when does the moment come for us when we get tired of just sitting there? And we start to believe that God can and will really do something in and through us that would absolutely blow our minds. But bigger than that, he would do something in and through us which would not only blow our minds, but it would accomplish something incredible for the glory of the name of Jesus. So I'm presenting a challenge today, Bethesda. I'm asking God to enlarge our faith, to expand our thinking, 
I'm asking us to make ourselves available to him for all the potential that he has for our lives and, and for us to live expecting God to do something through us for the glory of his name. Is anybody with me this morning that you would like to see that happen in your life? Well, it was literally a word in the story I'm about to read to you that snagged my heart. And I want to share with you about a couple of guys in Scripture who didn't just sit there. But their moment came. And one guy that we're going to read about in this passage, figuratively speaking, attached his balloons to the chair, and his life suddenly experienced an explosion of faith, which made the big difference. So here's the deal. As you know, Saul becomes the first king of all of Israel, and his first assignment, according to 1 Samuel 13, is an assignment where he blows it. Blows it pretty big time. And so here we see he's now facing his first battle. Saul is now facing his first battle as a king. 1 Samuel 13, uh, the first verse, tells us this. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 42 years. Now we know he's about to face what would be the normal, uh, the normal enemy for the Israelites. He was going to face the Philistines. And what do we know about the Philistines? Well, we learn that from verse 5 of this same chapter. The Philistines mustered a mighty army of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and as many warriors as the grains of sand on the seashore. That's a lot of warriors, okay? And then there's a bit of an interlude here that shows us that as soon as Saul gets into his first battle, uh, he's about to lose his, the kingdom and about to lose his, his posterity, and he's essentially told that, yes, he's going to lose God's touch and God's anointing on his life, and simply because of what he did in chapter 13. You go read it this afternoon. Basically, Saul gets impatient waiting on Samuel to arrive, as, as Samuel had promised in uh, chapter 10, verse 8 of the same book. So Saul decides what he's going to do is he's going to take on the position of a priest. And he, so he did his own sacrificing of the burnt offerings, which he was told he was not to do. He was supposed to wait on Samuel to show up. And so the prophet Samuel finally arrives in chapter 13, verse 11, and he says to Saul, while Saul's doing what he wasn't supposed to do, he says to him, what are you doing? And Saul tells him what he's doing. And so Samuel says, I love the King James, Thou hast done a foolish thing. There's other ways of saying that. Today we would say, you idiot, why are you doing that? It come out completely different. Since you've not kept the command of the Lord, now your kingdom must end, Samuel tells him. For the Lord has sought a man after his own heart, and we know who that man is. His name is David. Well, Saul had an excuse. And he said this, and don't we always have an excuse? He said, well, the people, Samuel, the people were, were scattering, and, and, and you showed up too late. Let me just say this. Those are typically the signs that someone is not really repentant. Have you ever noticed that? When confronted, an unrepentant person will quickly say, well, well they were doing this, and, and you didn't do that. It was always somebody else's fault, something else that somebody else should have done or, or didn't do. And that's one of the first indicators of an unrepentant person. And so Saul finds himself with this enemy in front of him, as many as the sands of the sea. And so what does Saul's army look like? Well, we get that from verse 6. 
He's going to go up against as many as the sands of the sea and Saul's army. The men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in, and because they were hard-pressed by the enemy, they, they tried to hide in caves, thickets, rocks, holes, and cisterns, or otherwise known as pits. That means that Saul's army found any possible place that they could hide, and there you have Saul's army. Look at it. Caves, thickets, rocks, holes, and pits. Basically what we're saying, they're saying is, we're getting out of Dodge. Look at those guys. Look at how many there are. So Saul is way outnumbered. He has an army who's hiding out. Saul has lost the kingdom through, though he's actually still on the throne at this time. However, as we move to chapter 14, we see that miraculously Israel does defeat the Philistines. Not because of Saul, not because of the guys who were hiding out, but literally it was a miracle from God. How many still believe in miracles here today? Let me hear you. And chapter 14 starts out with some guys who are just sitting there from Saul's group with no idea of what to do. 1 Samuel 14, verse 2 says, Meanwhile, Saul and his 600 men were camped on the outskirts of Gibeah around the pomegranate tree at Migron. What kind of tree? Keep that in mind. Among Saul's men was Ahijah, the priest, who was wearing the ephod, the priestly vest. Ahijah was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitab, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord who had served at Shiloh. Now, no one realized, though, that Jonathan had bolted or he had left the Israelite camp. So, where did Jonathan go? Well, here's where it's going to get interesting as we see this incredible contrast take place. Whenever you want to contrast something, you take two things that are opposite. And it's, 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 you can see clearly the differences the more opposite that they are. Two things that are just very far apart from each other. Uh, let me show you, give you an example, and, and you've done this too. At the request of our son, and at another time at the request of our son-in-law, um, they asked Becky and I to go with them at, the, at their individual times. They weren't together, uh, a couple of years apart. When each of them went to the jeweler to choose the ring that they were going to give to their prospective brides. And so on both of these visits to the jeweler, as we walked in, um, you looked around a bit. Uh, then each of the young men start to hone in on the two or three or four rings that they would like to consider and get a, a closer look. And so you married men have all done this, and you know how this goes. When they pull the ring out of the showcase, do they just hand it over to you? No. Do they just lay it on the countertop? No, they don't do that. How do they present the ring to you? They put it on black velvet, right? Why? There's a reason why. Somebody figured this out one day because they want you to see the contrast. And that black velvet makes that ring look its finest in front of you at that moment. So they take the beautiful diamond, they put it on the black velvet so that you can see it stand out. And somebody figured that out, and it's a very smart thing to make it the most beautiful to you. It is far more attractive to you. It is far more appealing to you on that black velvet than if you just were holding it in your hand. And I want to tell you today, that's exactly what the Bible does. I haven't seen it as much before as I see it today. But the Bible will take these jewels 
these incredible uh, jewels, as they were, and put them on black velvet. Let me give you an example. Uh, remember when Mary is breaking open the alabaster box to anoint the feet of Jesus with the, uh, with the ointment. Most uh, biblical commentators believe that the value of that, um, that uh, ointment was the same as one year's wage and that she was using to anoint the feet of Jesus. Well, so here's the contrast. About three verses later, depending upon how you read the chapter, but about three verses later, here is Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, there's your black velvet. Here is one pouring out a year's wage to anoint the feet of Jesus. There's a diamond. And another who is betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And it all happens within the same chapter. That's taking the diamond and putting it on a black velvet to contrast for you. And you see the same thing with Abraham and Lot. Abraham looks to heaven and says, God, I'm happy to let him choose which, which land he wants. And so Lot gets first choice, and he says, you know what? I'm going to take that land because it looks like the Garden of Eden. But he, we know he ends up in Sodom. And Abraham simply said, well, whatever you want. And God says, so it is all yours, Abraham, like the sands of the sea. And there we see another contrast, the diamond and the black velvet. And in this chapter that we're reading today, we find yet another of those contrasts. Here you have 600 guys who have been hiding in all those places that we mentioned. They're not fighting, but they're sitting under their lawn chairs under a pomegranate tree. And they have a host of an army ready to take them out, and yet what are they doing? They're still sitting under a... And then like two diamonds, in this chapter, we see Jonathan and his armor bearer break away from the 600 remaining men in Saul's army. And just like Larry Walters putting helium balloons tied to a lawn chair, they end up with the same thought. I can't just sit here any longer. I can't just sit here and do nothing. I cannot just sit here and wait for something to happen. And there is one word one word that triggered the whole thing to me and challenged me to the core. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan says this to his armor bearer. Let's go across to the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. And here's what he says. Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. Somebody say hallelujah. So go to that moment with me. You're his armor bearer. You're sitting with a group of 600 wimpy guys who are hiding out everywhere. The, the other army that are as many as the grains of the sand of the sea are before you. And the guy that you're serving says, let's go over there. I'm sure he looked at him and thought, are you crazy? But here's what he said. Do what you think is best, the armor bearer replied. He might have done it with a shaking voice. Do, do what you think is best, but I'm with you completely, whatever you decide. And look at verse 13. So they climbed up using both hands and feet. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, killed those who came behind them. 
what a contrast. What a diamond on the black velvet. 600 dudes sitting in lawn chairs under a pomegranate tree deciding what to do. Black velvet. And those other two guys who within them said something like this, forget that. Let's do something here. Let's believe God wants to do something through us. The diamond. And so these two guys break away from the pack to get something accomplished for God. And here's the rest of the story. Verse 14. They killed, these two guys, killed some 20 men in all, and their bodies were scattered over about half an acre. Suddenly, panic broke out in the Philistine army both in the camp and in the field, including even the outposts and the raiding parties. And just then, an earthquake struck, and everyone was terrified. Trust me, we're going to hit all this in one way or another. Hang on to it. So those guys who numbered like the sands of the sea are now terrified and shaking, and we see two guys knock off the whole of the Philistine army. Two guys who said inside, enough of the pomegranate tree. Enough of sitting around doing nothing. Enough of the status quo. All because, verse 6 again, one of them said, Jonathan said, let's go across to the outposts of those pagans. He said to his armor bearer, and here's the line, perhaps, say that word, perhaps the Lord will help us. Say that whole line. Perhaps the Lord, one more time, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. In other words, let's go do this. Perhaps the Lord will help us. And that's the word that popped out at me, perhaps. Say it again. You know what? If I had been there, I, I have to admit, I, I, I might have said something like this. You know, I, I don't know, Jonathan. Um, I, I'm glad for your faith, but I, I don't know if that's enough for me. Uh, uh, perhaps. I mean, that, that's a scary word. Just think about it. If you're the armor bearer and, and your main man comes up with an idea like this. He says, we're going over. And you're the armor bearer. And you say, well, how many are over there? Oh, like the sands of the sea. And so what are we doing? Well, let's go over and engage them. You're talking the two of us. Take on all of them. And then your buddy says this, but perhaps the Lord will help us. I don't know about you, but if I'm the armor bearer, I'm thinking, you know, I, I need something more, buddy, than perhaps. Perhaps sounds like maybe to me. I need something more than perhaps. Why don't you have a, a, a thus saith the Lord or God has spoken to me or I saw it written in the sky. You need something more, a more definitive word than perhaps. If I had been the armor bearer, I, I would have probably said something like this. Perhaps you should go on without me. That's a better idea. Perhaps. Are you crazy? That's all you've got is a perhaps. I'm sure most of you here this morning are way too conservative to step out in faith on nothing more than a perhaps. I, you know, we need a more definitive word, something more solid to put our feet on. But here's the issue. Listen to me very carefully. 
I'm concerned that there are far too many of us sitting around waiting on a definitive word and end up doing nothing. Are you, you still love me? Let me give you an example. You know, I don't know, should I take one of those Operation Christmas Child boxes when they put those out in, in the fall? Should I take, you know, I didn't feel anything from the Lord on that. And we sit and we wait for God to speak audibly. I've got to have a direct word from God. And you end up doing nothing. You walk into the grocery store, you know, and you want to hear the voice of the Lord. So, Lord, what kind of jelly should I buy today? Should I get Smuckers or should I get Welch's on the jelly? It's almost like you can hear the Lord saying, choose what you like. Which one do you want? And there are times, church, where some of us are waiting so long to hear the voice of the Lord, you're so afraid that, of doing anything until you hear him audibly and you end up sitting under a pomegranate tree. Never doing anything for God because you're waiting for some overwhelming sign that's going to come and sweep you off your feet because you need a definitive word. Well, let me tell you something, Bethesda, specifically Bethesda. If there had not been an M.F. Martin who got up from sitting under the pomegranate tree at the old Northside Church in Cowtown and discovered the piece of property at which you now sit this morning and fought for it sacrificially with everything he had, there would be no Bethesda Church today. And he did that simply on the faith that said, perhaps the Lord will help us. If there had not been, a, been men of faith like David Gregg and Ben Martin and John Hall who flew to California to meet some foreigner named Desmond Evans and those men took the risk of bringing Des to Fort Worth to present him to a church that was as culturally unfit as it could possibly be and those men did it with family and friends who hated them for it then Bethesda would never have had the rich heritage, experienced the extravagant grace, nor would she have been taught the depth of the word as she was for 34 years, all because those men were willing to get up from underneath the pomegranate tree and say, perhaps the Lord will help us. That's all they had to go on. Perhaps. And This morning, you and I stand on the shoulders of those people of faith, whether we know it or not. Oh, that God would give us men and women with the faith to step out to say today, God, maybe you can do it. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Three things about this word before we go to the table of the Lord this morning. Number one, perhaps was enough for Jonathan to risk his life. And it should be enough for you and me to do what God wants us to do. It was enough for him to risk his life on a death mission for two guys to take on an army whose number could be only described as like the sands of the sea. And Jonathan said, perhaps the Lord will help us. Guys, you can sit down. I got, just because I said that doesn't mean I'm finishing anytime soon, okay? When you contrast the guys under the pomegranate tree to those two guys who were crawling, did you read it with me? Who were crawling out on all fours? That's basically what it is. Came out on their hands and feet. My conclusion is this. God, that's how you win battles. And we skipped over the part in verse 3 which tells us that one of the guys under the tree was Ahijah, the priest, who was wearing the ephod. You know what used to happen with the ephod? That was how they tried to get wisdom from God. On a couple of occasions, even King David requested, bring the ephod, let's see what the Lord wants us to do. And while they are sitting there trying to figure out what God wants them to do, thank 
God for two men who had the courage to get up and say, this is what God wants to do. God wants the victory here in this situation, and God wants to do something powerful. Thank God that there are people of faith who are willing to do that. Somebody say amen this morning. How many of you know that we're still living in a moment where we need to stop sitting around but get up from under the pomegranate tree and do something for God? Oh, I need a bigger amen than that. For church, our work on this earth is not yet finished. We're still living in a world with people who are dying and going into eternity without a Savior. How many of you know that we're still responsible for making sure this world knows that he breaks the power of cancel sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the vilest clean and his blood avail for me. And you can't do that sitting under a pomegranate tree with every vile, filthy thing that's taking place in our world and just let it go by. And sadly, for many of us in your very own homes, there's plenty of things taking place that you aren't very pleased with and you know it does not please the Lord. And unfortunately, some people say, well, it is what it is. We'll just have to accept it. No, don't accept it. It's time to get up with an explosion of faith and shout to the highest heavens, perhaps the Lord will help us. Perhaps the Lord will help us reach our neighbors. Perhaps the Lord will help us reach our, our workmates, our own children, reach our city. Because it's still true that Jesus has come to set the captive free. That's why he died for us. So number one, perhaps was enough for Jonathan to risk his life. Number two, every one of us here today are sitting under a pomegranate tree. And you are given chance after chance after chance to crawl out from underneath that pomegranate tree on all fours, if you will, to do something for God. In fact, we are given opportunities every day where you can leave the 600 that are sitting under a tree and say to the Lord, God, would you use me today? Use me something for your kingdom. I know I've got this problem. I know I've got this I'm dealing with. I know I've got all of this stuff. And I'm not going to wait until I get good enough and get my stuff all together. I'm not going to, God, would you use me today? I'm going to have the faith to believe that you can use me in spite of who I am. And I'm here to challenge you today that every one of us are living with a perhaps in the grasp of your hand. Perhaps this is the day of salvation for someone you will encounter. Perhaps this is the, the day God wants to open up your mouth to speak to someone else about Jesus. Just to remind us that nothing happens under the tree. Nothing happens under the tree. So your choice and my choice is this. Do I sit in a chair or do I get on my hands and knees? Perhaps if you play a, or sing a song today, God may do something. Perhaps if you just simply open up your mouth and say something, God may do something in someone's heart. And the final thing is this, number three. Usually, earthquakes follow those kinds of steps of obedience. Usually, earthquakes follow. Doesn't happen before, happens after. So many people have positioned themselves this way to say, God, I will speak, I'll serve, I'll give, I'll go. If you'll just show me something, give me a sign, something that I just know that's what you want me to do. And we're looking for all these fleece moments instead of just simply saying, you know what, God? Perhaps if I stepped out in faith, 
you just might show up here today. You might show up in my home. You might show up in my life. Perhaps if I, if I did just go on a missions trip, you might change the way I see the world. But we have programmed ourselves to default by responding first with a no. That's where we respond. Perhaps if we reprogrammed ourselves to have an automatic response of yes when the Lord speaks to us, he might just do some things that would, that would blow our minds. Those of you old enough to remember Nancy Reagan, she may have taught us, in particular the young people at that time, to just say no to drugs and alcohol. But when it comes to Jesus and the work of his kingdom, church of the living God, people who claim to be born again by the Spirit of God, we need to quickly learn to say to Jesus, just say yes to what he's calling us. Any Japanese missionary will tell you that we Americans read the Bible all wrong. Because in America, we read left to right. We read like this. But in Japan, the way the characters are, they're top to bottom. So they read like this. Up and down. And the point of the missionaries, when they say that, they say every time we read the Word of God, our response shouldn't be this. Our response should be this. Yes, just say yes. Say it with me. So what are you afraid of? Who knows? Perhaps God will do something in you that you never dreamed of. Perhaps the Lord will meet you there. And the other option for you and for me is that you spend the rest of your life sitting under the pomegranate tree or sitting in your lawn chair, sitting in a pew, unless today you're willing to say in your heart, God, please give me the faith to break out from my mundane rut, even if it means crawling out on my hands and knees. Because church, I'm here to tell you this morning, perhaps is enough. I said perhaps is enough. It's faith the size of a grain of mustard seed. The size of a, a, perhaps is faith the size of a grain of mustard seed. But it's all that God requires of us. Perhaps you need to get out from under the pomegranate tree and to start tithing. Dead silence. Perhaps you need to get out from under the pomegranate tree and maybe return to tithing. You stop for whatever reason. Or maybe you're tithing, but you need to take the extra step of faith and become part of the, the P2 giving program that helps the church make our mortgage payments here. Perhaps the Lord would meet you there in ways that you never knew could happen. He still says in Malachi 3, test me in this tithing thing and see if I don't open up heaven, beyond to, uh, heaven itself to you and pour out blessings beyond your wildest dreams. Could I get one amen in the house today? Pastor Brent, come and bail me out of this. There was a young couple who just got married and they were so excited. When the wedding and reception were over, they were in one of the really nice hotels of the city. One of their parents had paid for their wedding night hotel as a gift before they left on their honeymoon. But they got to the room, they walked in, they were just exhausted from the day and when they got in the room they quickly noticed that the only thing in the room was a couch two chairs and a desk. And he said to her, well, they got us the cheap room. Oh, well, let's, let's just be thankful. We'll only be here for one night. So they looked at the couch, and it was one of those pull-out with a, one of those mattresses that's about an inch thick. You've, you've, you know what that's like? 
And they looked at each other and said, well, it is what it is. It's honeymoon night. We've waited for this for three years. And our parents, I guess, just, maybe they just didn't know. Let's give them a break. Maybe they didn't know what they were getting us. Bless their hearts, they tried to do what they could. So they slept in this pull-out bed with a little small bathroom off to the side, very small. The next morning, as they were darting off to the airport to catch their plane, they stopped at the front desk and the clerk said, how did you like your room? The guy said, well, can I I be honest with you? It was really kind of small. I mean, we just got married and last night and we we were expecting something else. The clerk said, what are you talking about? I said, well, it was just this tiny room with, you know, we were in room 1207, a tiny room with just a couch and two chairs and a desk. And the clerk said, you didn't open the door? He said, where you're talking about, that was just the entryway. If you had opened the door, you would have discovered a two-level bridal suite with an enormous bed and all these gifts and all the food that had been prepared for you and candles burning. But they never opened up the other door that would have revealed to them all that had been prepared and all that was waiting for them. And they spent the whole night in the entryway of their hotel room on their honeymoon night. Bethesda, when I heard that story, I made a determination. I'm never again going to look at a door that's there. That God puts in front of me and leave it closed. Because I believe this. Perhaps God might have prepared something special that he wants me to see or wants me to do. And just perhaps whatever it is that he has for me, perhaps the Lord will help me. Because my other choice is to stay under the pomegranate tree, hanging out with 600 old guys, stuck in a rut. When all the while, and what we're about to celebrate in the closing moments of this service, all the while, we understand that Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. Somebody say hallelujah to that.